Surely God is my salvation, the prophet wrote. He penned these words after the first 11 chapters of his prophecy when he began to realize that the good news of God's love was to be given to the entire world. For 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters of his book, He's over and over again presented this picture of the ideal king, of the ideal kingdom, of what it will look like when this king is finally following in the footsteps of God's very own way. The lion and the lamb will lay down together. The, the cow and the bear will graze. The poor will be fed. The oppressed will be welcomed. The stranger will not be shunned, not be seen as foe, but instead as friend. And peace in Israel, in this prophet's dream and his vision, would become peace for the world. You know, we Christians, we read Isaiah chapters 1 through 11, and we see a a reflection of Jesus. You'll hear these texts again as we move into the season of Advent in the month of of December. They'll be read often in worship. They'll be spoken out in a variety of places. You might get Christmas cards with some of their sayings on the front of them. Because when we hear these words of peace, wholeness, of welcome, we hear echoes of Jesus proclaiming the same thing, of welcoming the stranger, of caring for the widow. When Jesus looks at the world, Jesus does not see race or religion. Jesus does not see national boundaries. No, he only sees children of the Most High. In light of this, then, this chapter 12 is almost a a Pentecostal preacher's uh, joy and jubilation. His arms are probably in the air. He's probably waving them back and forth as as he proclaims, I'll give thanks to you, Lord. I'll give thanks to you, Lord, for all that you have done. For though you were angry, you have forgotten your anger. You've turned it away. You see, he's he's had an experience of grace. He's seen what the, the worst that the world can do. In Isaiah's day, they were in danger of being overrun, and in fact, they were finally overrun, destroyed. Those who survived were taken off, taken away. But Isaiah has seen beyond that ugly day. He recognizes that God is going to bless God's people and will one day make a way for them to return. He's had an experience of grace. He's seen the worst that the world can do, but he's also seen what, what, what can happen when God's ways of mercy welcome forgiveness become a part of of the people of God. Now with this ideal picture of the of the ideal king and an even more ideal kingdom where truly all are invited and all are welcome. He not only has an experience of what we might call amazing grace. He discovers new courage. I hope you heard it as Monica read. I will trust and not be afraid. It's in the forgiveness, in the grace that he finds the power to trust and to leave fear behind, to not be afraid, for God has become his salvation. Trust leads to the elimination of fear. Grace leads to an experience of salvation. You know, sometimes we get that, that word salvation confused a little bit and what it means. We tend to think, or a lot, at least our, our culture think, seems to think, that salvation is about what happens when you, when you die, and if you've been saved, then you get to go to heaven, and if you haven't been saved, then that's, the other option isn't bad. The word for salvation, especially in the Hebrew, and, and also in Jesus' day in the Greek, has a much broader meaning, a much deeper, richer understanding. Salvation speaks to your life today, right now. This man, this Isaiah, has experienced salvation, new life, 
and his life is changed and turned around. It's not for him about where he'll go when he dies. He trusts that God will take care of that. It's about a life now. But like I said, sometimes we get confused. We think that, that our religion is sort of a merit-based religion, a, a bookkeeping one where somebody's keeping track of all the things we do that are, that are good and, and right. Uh, there's a story about a man who's standing at the pearly gates before Peter. And Peter looks at this man and he says to him, Now, before I let you in, tell me something you've done that, that deserves merit. The man said, Well, one time I, I came upon this group of bikers, a bunch of mean-looking big dudes, uh, surrounded by their motorcycles, but they had, they had come upon this one poor young guy and they were really intimidating him. I think getting, they were getting ready to rob him. And so I just, I got out of my car, walked over to the big guy who's wearing, that looked like the obvious leader. He was wearing a leather vest that was sleeveless. He was wearing leather chaps and he was huge guy muscles and, and shoulders out to here. And, you know, he had a big loopy earring in his ear and I just walked up to him and I, I slapped him. And then I ripped that earring out of his ear and threw it down on the ground. I kicked over his bike and I said, listen, buddy, you're going to have to deal with me before you get to this guy. Peter said, wow, that's impressive. When did you do that? And the man said, about two minutes ago. <laughs> now, I like that story. I, I like that story. But the problem with it is it, it feeds into this idea that somehow if you do enough right things, or if you believe the right things, or you say the right things, then, then you're in. But in Isaiah's understanding, it's not about merit. It's about welcome and grace. It's about us building and creating a place where all are invited to experience the goodness of God's love and grace now, in the moment. You know, today's, today's sermon idea was one I developed a, oh, a month or so ago. I, I looked at the calendar and thought, oh, it's the Sunday after the election. Perhaps we'll need a little bit of grace, a funny story to hear or tell. I posted on Facebook early on Wednesday morning that I was ready to preach this Sunday. Now, the sermon wasn't ready. It wasn't done. But I was ready, myself, to hear some good news, to be reminded of God's presence in the world, regardless of who wins or loses. That was true on Tuesday morning. It's true today on Sunday. Too often we Christians forget that the most inspiring and, and beautiful scriptures were written not in times of prosperity and peace but in turmoil and in trouble as monica's prayer indicated earlier yes there are some who are celebrating this week and there are others who are distressed we're called not to try to fix all of that necessarily but first to recognize that god is still god that we, people of Christian faith, are still called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And some of us may have voted one way, and some of us may have voted another, and some of us may not have voted at all. And in light of all of that, we are then invited to share in the salvation that God has already given to the world. You know, think about our own religion. Jesus came about and taught in a time when there was not a democratically elected leader. It was Caesar in Rome. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, came when, when Rome was able to tell you, listen, there'll be peace as long as you do what we tell you to do. And if you don't, well, they have a cross reserved. The Romans crucified thousands around the Roman Empire. Thousands who got in the way of being, got in the way of Rome. Our religion was founded in the shadow of one of those crosses. The one we name as Lord and Savior was executed on one of them. And yet his disciples found, and we have since discovered, 
that they did not have power over his life. It's the, it's the beauty of the resurrection that proclaims to us that what looks on the outside as though all is lost or there's great turmoil and trouble might actually be the very place at which God is doing something new. Our very faith was formed in the shadow of the cross. You know, I believe that, that Isaiah was Jesus' favorite book in the Bible. Jesus began his ministry, you might recall, by proclaiming and reading from Isaiah 58 and 61. He stood up in front of the synagogue and began, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. In the sermon that followed, he explained that this word was calling the people of God to allow God's grace, God's mercy, to be extended to everyone. You can imagine, can't you? This is Jesus' first sermon. You can hear the crowd. You can see the crowd. Maybe there's somebody way in the back, way in the back whispering, oh, it's nice. Jesus is doing so well. He's got such a nice reading voice, doesn't he? And what did he say? Oh, there's, there's a recovery of sight for the blind and the oppressed will go free. Isn't that nice? They feel good about him. And then he gives a couple of illustrations, and he talks about this woman, a widow from the, the, the area of Zarephath. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She worships a different, com- completely different religion. And yet, Jesus says she was blessed. It's in, their, it's in their Bible. It's in the Hebrew Bible. It's an old story. Then he tells another story. It's also in the, in the Hebrew Bible of Naaman, a Syrian officer in the army of their enemies who's covered in leprosy who comes to Israel, and he too is blessed. Jesus is saying to them, God will bless whoever God desires to bless, regardless of your faith, regardless of your nation, regardless of your race. God's blessings are given to all. You you might recall that it was a beautiful sermon. It It was also a short sermon, a very good one, and yet at the end they tried to kill him. Grace works that way. When, when grace is spoken of in the abstract, it sounds wonderful. We'll sing Amazing Grace at the end. It's a beautiful song. It feels good. Oh, yes, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. But then when we get real specific about the fact that grace is given to everyone, all of a sudden, it can bring up anger, fear, worry, even doubt. That's, that's why I chose for the title of this sermon, a line from that same song, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It brings fear because, first of all, we're afraid that we might have to admit that we, we are in need of forgiveness, but it brings even more fear when we see that in Jesus Christ, this grace has become a universal gift, given, given to the world. I think about it like this, maybe get more specific. That obnoxious guy in your neighborhood who hasn't stopped talking even today about their election and all the stuff that's been going on and is about to go on, yes, he's forgiven and loved by God. That wacky woman who won't shut up about her candidate either and she's still, still going on in your neighborhood or in your family or wherever it is, yeah, her too. She's, she's forgiven. What might happen this week if everyone who's a member at Country Club Christian Church or a friend of our congregation was kind to someone who disagrees with you. You can be kind. You can be friendly. That doesn't mean you're, you're giving up your convictions. What would happen if we started with kindness? Yesterday, we had a memorial service for Marianne C. I'm sure many of you remember 
Marianne. She was on our staff for well over three decades, had just about every job except preacher uh, in, in our church. Sweet, kind, gracious woman. Her, her son gave me a poem that he said reminded him of, of his mom. The last line from the anonymous author reads, She died as she lived, everyone's friend. What would it be for us to simply be a friend to another in this season of turmoil and anger and frustration? You see, God's grace is truly universal. It's extended not just to Christians, but to Muslims, to Hindus, even to, to atheists. Carla reminded me this week of our friend Abdul. He's a Muslim man who works with Dalai Lama. It's the agency that helps to, to provide new homes for refugee families coming to the Kansas City area. I, I thought about how beautiful it is that he works with uh, our group of, of refugee-supporting women led by, led by Kathy Buckley. She oversees the efforts of about 25 women who are involved in this, in this work. I would really love to see our refugee ministry become uh, the, the leaders of the refugee ministry for the entire, the refugee work for the entire United States of America. I think they could handle it and do a really fine job, the best, the best we've ever seen. Abdul has the ability to be able to see the mercy of God at work even when the world is at its worst. And he can tell you stories. In fact, when he said those words to Carla, and Carla shared them with me, it made me think about Joseph. Remember Joseph in Genesis 50? Joseph, the one with the technicolor dream coat? Don't, Joseph, the one who was sold by his brothers into slavery, who rises into power in Egypt and becomes the second in command of the entire nation when his brothers come before him seeking food and shelter and, and, and help because there's a famine back in Israel. He reveals his identity to them. They fall down on their faces, on their hands and knees, begging for forgiveness. And he tells them, my brothers, stand, please. You see, he's, in, he's second in command. He's second in charge. With a flip of his hand, he can have them put to death. But he says to them instead, what you intended for evil, God bent, twisted, reworked, reshaped, and formed it for good. Abdul's email to Carla earlier this week were almost the exact same words. That, that is forgiveness. It's rooted in amazing grace. It's what we'll sing about at the end of today's service. It's about the beauty and joy of salvation, the rebuilding of relationships, the removal of barriers. You might recall my blog from this past summer when I wrote about a man who I sat next to on a plane while I was returning to Kansas City. I was tired, worn out. I'd been in some meetings all, all day long and the night before. was ready to just kind of nap on the plane. Even got one of those exit row seats where you get extra leg room, you know. But it was clear that this guy wanted to talk. We got into the conversation, and finally I said, well, tell me what you do. What's your background? He said, well, right now I live in Kentucky. I'm working for this uh, military agency that flies me all around to do various consulting work. And I said, oh, have you been in the military? He said, yeah, I, I was in the military. He said, in fact, that's, that's why I'm flying today. Well, well tell me about your, your story. How, how, how did you get into the, into the Army? He said, well, I used to play football for the University of Kentucky, got injured, <clears throat> ended my college career. It was about the same time that desert, uh, the first desert storm was, was beginning, the, the Iraq War in, two, in 1993, and so I enlisted and I served. I remained after, after that service in, in the reserves, and I was called up again in 2003 for the second Iraqi war and was sent in to fight, got into a firefight in Fallujah, and my buddy and I took some pretty serious 
some pretty serious wounds. Just as I was passing out, he said, I, I thought this is what it's like to die. He said, as luck would have it, a group of Marines came by almost a moment or two later. They picked us up and the next day I woke up in a, in a Navy a hospital ship. My life was saved. It's unbelievable. But my buddy, those wounds are still, still there. His mom called me three days ago and said he's dying. Would you come see him? So I'm flying to say goodbye to my friend, to my comrade in arms. He got tears in his eyes when he told me that. Then he took a deep breath. He said, well, I've been doing all the talking. Tell me about yourself. What do, you, what do you do? Are you from Kansas City? Yeah, I'm from Kansas City. I'm a pastor there. And almost immediately he said, no offense, sir. No offense, but I'm an atheist. I said, none, none taken. Tell me about your atheism. He said, did you hear the story I just told you about Fallujah and the horrors that I saw there? He'd given me great detail about some of the terrible things he'd witnessed. I said, yes. He said, that, for one thing, brings doubt to mind. Another, I've read the Bible, and I know the Bible, and he began quoting different things, and he named some of the, some of the challenges in the Bible where it seems to disagree with itself. And I said, listen, I, I, trust me, I know all about those two. I, I appreciate your thoughtfulness. I said, tell me more about your life. And he told me he's married, he has four kids. Two of them are adopted. He adopted them from a, a drug-addicted family where the mom and dad were just overwhelmed by drugs, and so he took them into their home and legally adopted them, made them his own. Bragged about his kids and what they're doing. He talked about the way he serves in his community. He says, you know, I'm in this small town of about 10,000. <laughs> everyone, everyone there knows I'm an atheist, and all those little Bible believers in that Kentucky village, that Kentucky town, aren't quite sure what to do with me, but I just keep loving them, and, well, they keep loving me too. As the plane was landing, I looked over at him, and I saw tears in his eyes, and I said, you doing okay? He said, yeah, I'm doing okay, but life's too short. And I feel so terrible for my brother for my comrade in arms whose life is fading away. I said, you know, I want you to know something. What you're doing is what Jesus calls us Christians to do, to wade into moments of fear and sadness and sorrow, to be there in, in, when someone is losing their life, to let them know how much we love them and care for them, to hold their hand, come not with many words, but with, with hands ready to hold. And then I paused and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I started to preach at you a little, and he said, it's okay, preacher. Maybe I'll come see your church someday. I said, you do. You'll meet some wonderful folks, and we'll welcome you graciously. We'll want you to bring your questions. We shook hands, and that was the last time I saw him. You know, 1 John 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Those who love know God. Those who do not love do not know God, for God is love. I saw that in my seatmate. I saw the love that he has for his country, for his family, for his friend. It's that same love that God has given to the world. God's not concerned about what we believe or don't believe. God's not worried about our race or our religion. God wants to know, how have you loved? Are you willing to give your love to your family, to your nation? to the world. In a few moments, we're going to sing the old hymn, and we'll sing that line, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And the second half of it is, "'And grace my fears relieved.'" And when we're done, 
when the final chord has echoed across the walls of this sanctuary, we will then go out into the world where we will welcome the stranger, we will love our neighbor, and we will proclaim to everyone we meet the love of God given to the world.